This is your pal Daffy Duck, and you're watching. You're watching. We're watching. You're watching Fanboy. 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 Fanboy, etc. Fanboy Nation. Dot, I assume Tom. The man I'm speaking with tonight has somehow managed to create a one-degree separation between Monster Squad and InSync. Henry McComas, how are you today? Jeez, uh, that's a great intro. I guess, uh, guess it's true. I'm doing good. How are you? I'm great, man. Uh, you know, you did the boy band con, the Lou Pearlman story as a yeah, documentary. I was, a, I was a producer and director of photography on that. Um, okay. So before we get into the monster squad with Wolfman's Got Nards, which is what we're talking about tonight, ultimate nineties boy bands, 98 degrees in sync, backstreet boys or LFO. Uh, Backstreet Boys, because <laughs> they had the cool Halloween video. You know, that's the first video I've ever I ever saw of theirs, and it was yeah. Backstreet's back. And I'm watching the video, and I was like, I don't know who you guys are. Where did you go, and where did you come from? Right. Yeah. Uh, the funny thing about that documentary is we were shooting it at the same time as Wolfman's Got Nards, and uh, I would tell people that I am shooting two horror documentaries, one about the horror movie The Monster Squad and the other one about the horrible manager of NSYNC, Lou Pearlman. <laughs> Lou Pearlman is his own movie monster at this point. I think I, I got my five o'clock shadow going that I could probably be mistaken for him right now, which is terrifying in and of itself. No, not at all. No, I think I'm also like two and a half feet taller than him. Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> so take us into Wolfman's Got Nards. Andre Gower is uh, co-writing this with you. He's directing it. You're one of the producers on this and the cinematographer on it. Um, yeah. How do you come onto this project and what's your relationship to it uh, from a fandom perspective? Because I was nine years old when the movie came out. And we were driving our third grade teacher crazy with Screaming Wolfman's Gotten Arts. Sure. Uh, I was one of those kids as well. Um, I was going through a box of my brother's VHSs. My brother's about nine years older than me and I had a box of tapes. And of course I was looking for the tape with the boobs on it and I couldn't find that one. And instead I pulled up a VHS tape with a white label that just had penciled in the monster squad. And I was like, what's that? And I put it into my VCR and I pressed play. And I was completely transported. It was everything that I wanted. It was a group of kids that were teaming up to fight the Universal Monsters, and I was inspired. And then that summer, I would take my friends, and we would go recreate scenes with action figures and an old uh, camcorder. And I started to learn the mechanics of filmmaking because of that movie. Fast forward to uh, present day, I am leaving the studio uh, Pilgrim Studios that I work at, that I worked at at the time, and, uh, outside was Andre Gower. And we instantly recognized him. My, uh, friend more than me because he was just at a signing and he goes, dude, that's Sean from Monster Squad. And I was like, no way! And we started throwing business cards at each other and I asked Andre what he was working on and he had a bunch of, uh, projects like Andre usually does. But he kept on talking about this documentary that I thought would fit very well with Pilgrim since Pilgrim did unscripted shows. Uh, and we were trying to 
switch gears and uh, push them towards movies a little bit more. So Andre and I uh, started meeting up and talking about what the documentary was. And I wasn't a big fan of fan documentaries. And I thought that if we were going to do it, we could do it a little different where we shoot it more uh, like a scripted uh, flick where it's premium quality uh, and that we have the fan testimonials, but we also have the behind the scenes as well. And we've it all together to make this one premium experience. And Andre was on board. So I wrote out an outline and started jotting down ideas and we started running with it. We pitched it to the studio uh, and in no time we were out in the field shooting both man's gotten arts. Well, I mean, you get from what Andre told me and what we saw in the documentary, which is available now on VOD and DVD, which we have to make mention several times throughout this interview. Yes. Um, we are, we were a little heartbroken that, uh, Robbie Kiger, who played Patrick, wasn't in the documentary and, uh, Michael Faustino, who played Eugene, weren't there. Um, we understand because, you know, it's, X amount of years, they're removed from it. They've given up on acting. They have different careers now. Um, was there an attempt to get the guys in the documentary? Because we do see Ashley Bank and Ryan Lambert uh, in the film. Yeah, uh, Faustino's behind the camera now. Uh, he uh, works uh, on crew for a lot of great movies. And uh, Andre reached out to uh, everybody. But the people that came together were the ones who were most eager to work on the production. And I don't think we lost anything. I think uh, the people that we do have in the documentary is a great bunch and uh, really shows. I mean, you have the guy who designed the original Gilman costume in the, in the film yeah. who turned Tom around. Woodruff Jr. I'm sorry, repeat his name. Tom Woodruff Jr. So you have Tom Woodruff Jr. In the movie who not only dressed uh, up as sorry, sorry, Tom, Tom Woodruff was, in the costume, in the he didn't costume. design it. Okay, right. Steve, Stephen Wynn uh, helped design it. Sorry, so Stephen Wynn designed the costume, and then didn't Stephen later on design the costume for uh, the the fishman in um, in Guillermo del Toro's movie Shape of Water? No, uh, I, the, he. Uh, however, uh, the look uh, he gave pointers on the paint and the color for the Fishman in uh, Shape of Water, but the designer of the Fishman in uh, Shape of Water was a gigantic fan of Monster Squad, and we got him as well. <laughs> the funny thing with the documentary that, that caught my eye right away is that Zack Ryder, or formerly Zack Ryder um, of the WWE, is in the documentary and like that threw me like that pulled me out for a second. I was like, Zach Ryder's in the movie. Of like, course he is. He's the ultimate fanboy. Right. But I didn't expect <laughs> to see him in the monster squad documentary. Like, you know, I know about Zach and I know his like crazy toy collection and how he probably spent like five years of his WWE salary, just collecting action figures. But like, yeah. when I saw him in there, I was like, wait a minute, Zach's in this. All right. That's cool. Yeah, he was very cool, and he was awesome to hang out, hang out with. We saw him at a convention in Orlando, and that convention, if you ever can do anything in your life, go to a, con a horror convention in Orlando, because it will be the most crazy thing you've ever seen. <laughs> Why Orlando specifically? I mean, here we here in L.A., we have um, 
Midsummer have, Night's Scream and Monster Palooza and Son of Monster Palooza and all that. So why Orlando? We have so many great cons in LA, but none of them end the night with a giant pool party with demon mermaids and, uh, many Mike Myers going around stabbing the guests. <laughs> okay. So now that Orlando's back open, we know what to do, uh, in the next few months. Exactly. Take us through the, um, the initial process. I know in 2006, somehow for the 19th anniversary of Monster Squad, a copy was found on the original 35 millimeter, like the last cut ever in existence in New Zealand. And Al- Alamo Drafthouse decides to pick it up. And then Fred Decker gets called in and Andre and Ryan and Ashley are a part of this. And this initial screening co- comes to fruition. When you heard that story to begin with, what was your reaction to it? And have you actually seen the 35 millimeter film itself? I did see it at one of the Alamos, actually. Uh, in the documentary, one of the big characters is actually the film format itself. And we shot the projectors and all the images. And so the 35 millimeter uh, film print that we shoot in the documentary is that print. And we stayed up there the whole time getting B-roll and it was awesome. But one of the best things that ever happened of that event in 2006 was that Fred Decker went up on stage uh, and people kept asking about a DVD and said, when is it going to be released? When is it going to be released? And he said, well, if you want it to be released, you can make it happen. Start uh, it happening with likes of Sean Robert, who ended up sending 48 personal letters in different characters uh, to convince Lionsgate to uh, open up and make this DVD. And they ultimately succeeded and they did it. So now who owns the rights to the movie then if Liongate is the one that distributed it, but I thought it was a Warner property initially. That is the greatest question you could ask. And we struggled with that during the making of the documentary the entire time. Nobody really knows who owns the rights to the monster squad. Uh, but I know that we licensed some footage from universal themselves. Um, when I talked to Andre about this, and Shane and, and Fred, Shane Black and Fred Decker, uh, co-wrote it. And then Fred Decker directed it. Um, we made mention that, you know, nine, 10, 11, 12 years old. That's the way we really talked in 1987. Like, yeah. you know, they were like in their late teens, early twenties. Essentially, this was a college film for them. Um, so it was really real to us. And, you know, we can't use that language anymore. You know, we can't call the fat kid, fat kid anymore. Even though I'm a no. fat man now, I was a skinny kid. Um, right. You know, you can't use, uh, and excuse my language for this, but this is an example from the movie. Call somebody a faggot, uh, as a pejorative, not as a homosexual slur and, uh, have it, have a different meaning to it. But that's how we really talked in 1987. Um, when you got to watch it, cause you were nine years younger than your brother and it's a different decade. It's a different era. Did you still feel that like it was, Real kids talking, not some guy cigar chomping in his 50s trying to remember what it was like when he was a kid making this movie? I think the reason why I resonate with uh, most of Shane Black and Fred Decker's work is because of how good they are at dialogue uh, and how honest they are with the characters. And definitely the reason why Little Henry liked the Monster Squad so much is because it was a bunch of kids that acted and talked just like him. So even though... Uh, those lines, 
aren't politically correct in today's era. They are part of a time capsule and they reflect reality at the time for how we spoke. And I think that's what makes the movie timeless. Um, you got Seth Green in this Adam Green, uh, you know, um, Adam Goldberg in the documentary. You have so many people that were childhood fans of this property that are really well known. I mean, you have one of the character designers and producers from Rise of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in the film. Uh, this really has had a huge effect on people that are, you know, I think Fred is the one that's most surprised to this day, almost 35 years later, that there's still such an affinity for this film. Yeah, absolutely. One of the most impressive things uh, is how many creatives this movie inspired. So all those people that you listed, Adam F. Goldberg uh, put the word nards in his TV show, the Goldbergs, which is one of the biggest TV shows on air right now and works to put it in every opportunity he can get. Uh, and it's all because he sat down as a kid and watched the monster squad and he was uh, touched by it. Uh, the fact that there's a common link uh, that I was noticing while shooting and filming it uh, that I can't exactly tap into, uh, but it's just this feeling that the Monster Squad inspires creative people. And maybe that has something to do with cult film, where people that love cult film are outsiders themselves, and so they too are creatives as well. But it's a superpower. It's a little superpower where the Monster Squad is igniting people to be creative. I mean, it, well, one of the most creative people in the world that ever existed was Frank Zappa. And I had a college professor who conducted, <laughs> you know, several interviews with him throughout the years. And you have Diva Zappa in the film. So there's she was that, great. That whole family is so talented and people would look at him and just think, wow, these are just a bunch of wackadoos. But like there's that level of creativity that some people just will never be able to understand. And that whole family's got it. That's that outsider mentality and you tapped into it. Yeah. Uh, I would be remiss in uh, not mentioning this. Uh, and as we always have to mention Brent Chalum, uh, yeah. who passed away and we don't want to give away here. And I mentioned in, in Andre's uh, interview that it wasn't a drug overdose. It wasn't, you know, cancer, it wasn't AIDS. It was something that could have easily been preventable if sure. it was caught the right way. And that's what makes it more heartbreaking. Um, when you got in contact with his, with his ex-girlfriend, who was also his childhood friend and her family, because Brent's family is no longer with us, you know, his mother and father passed as well. Um, how did it, you know, what, what coaxing, I hate to use the word coaxing, but um, I think that's the only thing that's coming to mind. How did you get them to open up and talk to you about Brent and the film itself and what he meant to them and what he meant to society uh, from an acting standpoint? There was no coaxing whatsoever. They were just thrilled to have the opportunity to share Brent's story. Um, and they were some of the nicest people ever. When we were there filming, they made us a quiche. <laughs> it was just this great family mentality. Uh, and, uh, Brent uh, touched a lot of people, uh, and then he went away. And I think they just wanted to make sure that people knew his story. Yeah. His, the story is phenomenal the way his ex-girlfriend tells it. And he really was beloved by the cast. 
Um, Andre said that, you know, Brent would have reveled in this because his story arc was the most uh, developed and, and he had the most to gain. And you can see Ryan and Ashley in the documentary truly feeling like they miss mm-hmm. Brent. And, you know, they made the movie 30 plus years ago. They were kids then, but they were working together essentially, what, for six months to film, to make the movie. So it's like a whole school year of your life. And these were your classmates. Um, you know, it's got to be difficult for them. Like, did you have to turn off the camera at some point and just let them break down on their own as well? Well, I'd be a really bad filmmaker if I turned off the camera. <laughs> uh, they were around the cameras so much that they just started forgetting that the cameras were there. Uh, and obviously we would have powered down if it was at a really emotional moment that they needed to spend by themselves. But uh, they were very open to sharing their experiences. Uh, and you're right. They were affected by Brent, even though it was 30 years ago. And some people didn't know what happened to him until later. A lot of people didn't know what happened. There's a lot of people that are going to find out for the very first time when they watch this documentary. And, and it really is heartbreaking. I wish he was here because we could see w- what would happen. And then I would yeah. love to see a, uh, a battle of fandoms between, uh, Goonies fans and, uh, and Monster Squad fans and to see who's more dedicated to the uh, franchise or the property. Who do you think wins? I think Goonies gets a lot more recognition because it was played far more often on TV that eventually, I mean, it, you know, it was, uh, it was a big hit back then, but, eventually it, it grew to this cult status that wouldn't have happened without being on TBS and so many other channels 50 times a year. Um, but I think with something like Monster Squad, where it's been forgotten by so many people, but those of us that had in, had such passion for it as kids would yeah. sit there and win because – like you have people reciting it, in, you know, line for line, and then the gentleman that had it in virtually every other language. Um, yeah, you know, uh, I told Andre what I would have loved to seen if if that gentleman had, get, and I can't remember his name at the moment. Please forgive me for that. Um, if there was like an ultimate cut reel of the scene between Brent and, and Andre going kick him in the nards and realizing the Wolfman has nards in Portuguese, Italian, French, Korean. You know, so on yeah. and so forth, and just hear it across across uh, the dubbings. Sean Robert is the fan that has all the movies from all over the world, and uh, he's still trying to get his hands on one from Africa and one from Antarctica. So I told him next time I go to Antarctica, I'll just bring a tape over there and get it at the post office. <laughs> wait, 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 wait! Antarctica. So this was actually taken to one of the. Scientific no, it, research it, bases. Or? It was not. I told him I'll take one so he can have one from me. <laughs> <laughs> that way it's touched every single continent and he's good to go. Absolutely. You know, are you going to take the, the tape that was your brother's and then make a copy over there and then that's the one that you bring back to him? Trying to see where that tape is. I got it around here somewhere. Uh, it's a great idea though. <laughs> You know, the, the, the tape that inspired your love for the Monster Squad is now added to the collection of, of Sean Robert's. That would be uh, a nice little tie-in for the sequel documentary because I have a feeling we might actually get a uh, a sequel to Monster Squad now that the documentary's out. 
Yeah, you think so? That would be fantastic. I off the record, well, you know, I mean, it's on the record that I pitched the idea to to Andre, but off the record, I told him my idea of how I would like to see it. Um, yeah. So you never know. You know, there's, I'm sure there's a million fan scripts out there that would tie yeah. everything together. So who knows? One of the he's, best fan films uh, will do it. He's got an idea too. <laughs> I think everybody does at this point, and I think it'd be fun to see see what happens. Um, when I think it'd be it'd be great to see in a uh, TV series like Stranger Things, you know, kind of over multiple episodes. That'd be pretty awesome. So, like a ten episode uh, limited series, or like a ten episode multi season series. Well, it could be limited series, or you make it a uh, multi season where the kids have to uh, get a new bad guy every season. I can see that, you know, and, and then you just introduce new monsters like the Invisible Man or the Hunchback of no, Notre Dame at some point, even though he wasn't really, you know, a, uh, an evil monster. He was just physically deformed. I'm just picking on I, the universal ones at this point. Um, and, yeah. Know. And then we'll stop at King Kong. Ooh, that would be interesting. Yeah. Doesn't, uh, doesn't Warner Brothers actually have the, uh, the original model or something or is that still at Universal Studios? Uh, the original model of what? Of King Kong, the little uh, the little eighteen inch one that was covered in rabbit fur. I hope Universal has it. But. <laughs> you never know. That that was my big gripe with Universal last time I went to Universal Studios was that like they erased so much of the previous history. They're like, yeah. oh yeah, this is where De- Desperate Housewives was filmed, and I was like, and the monsters, and Leave It to Beaver, and like <laughs> you know all this other stuff that you guys did, and like you guys have what the most Oscars out of any studios and you barely mention it. It's just like flags hanging out everywhere and that's it. Oh, they're trying to stay current. (laughs) Yeah. You know, current is good, but, uh, when, what is it? Um, soundstage 28 was torn down. That kind of broke my heart. You know, the Phantom of the Opera stage, the haunted one. I, I agree. And then this time and age, it's all about nostalgia anyways. So they should put that stuff in the front. Uh, what are you nostalgic for then? I mean, Monster Squad is a huge part of nostalgia, but it's a huge part of people's lives. There's something that, you know, you have to be nostalgic for from your youth at this point. Mm, I see myself, uh, I, I was born in the eighties. I see myself, uh, missing things like, are you afraid of the dark and goosebumps and, uh, things like that. All of which are coming back. Yeah. There was a miniseries on Are You Afraid of the Dark that I watched on Nickelodeon last year, and it was really good. I think they're actually bringing back the series, or they're doing another movie. Oh, that'd be great. Um, you know, cartoons are making a huge comeback, too. Animaniacs is coming back. Tiny Toons is coming back. Yeah. So, the, you know, what's old is now new again. Um, what was something about about making this documentary that you learned about Andre since you guys were friends for a while before this came about and what's something that you you totally saw that was him from the get-go and it's like that's just his personality it's always going to be through no matter if the camera's on or off Andre's a great big picture guy uh so while we're going through the production and I'm trying to focus on all the minute uh production ordeals and story and everything he's able to take a step back and look at the overall picture and know we're starting at point A, but we need to get to B. Uh, and so it's always great to have someone on the team like that. So you'll never get lost. 
uh, and you'll keep pushing forward. Uh, and, uh, the thing that I learned is he's extremely genuine. He gives everybody personal experiences. If you're a fan, if you're a waiter, if you're a friend, or if you're somebody he just met, he'll get to know you, listen to you, and you'll end up leaving the room with a new friend. Uh, yeah, we became fast friends when we talked about Baby Frankenstein uh, over the summer. And then, you know, when oh, the great. documentary came out, I was like, I, I have to talk to him about this one. Um it, it, there was a scene with the sunrise and, and Andre made mention of it that, uh, you know, you're like, Oh, this is the, or he said, this is the perfect spot for the sunrise. And you know, the, you guys were all tired, but you're like, Nope, makes sense. And then you actually woke up to watch yeah. the sunrise for a scene that ended up in the movie. Um, was there something that you guys worked towards like the sunrise itself that took longer than expected, you know, cause you have to wait for the sun to come up. You can't do anything about that. Um, that you wished ended up in the documentary that ended up on the cutting room floor because it just didn't fit the 90 minute narrative. Everything we made an hour worth of special features, uh, that, uh, for one reason or another, uh, isn't, didn't make it out on, uh, the Blu-ray or any of the VOD releases. So hopefully we can put those on YouTube and release those later. Uh, and inside there is a bunch of deleted scenes and extended interviews. Uh, but I really believe the cut of the movie is the best representation of the movie. There was going to be a version of it where it was more of a docu-follow thing where we were following them on tour and we're going to every state and they do a fun activity in the state and we did some things like that. Uh, but when we really started to dial in the relationship between fans and a movie and an audience and a film, uh, all that other stuff started to go away and it became a more emotionally cohesive experience. Was there a particular story of yours that became your favorite uh, fan story? I mean, there was the gentleman uh, who Andre actually stopped the line and said, hey, we're, you know, would you like to tell your story on camera? And he realized because you guys were making the documentary, he got put into it after he had already put everything away. Um, yeah. but was there a particular story that really warmed your heart and goes, wow, this is something that's totally amazing? The most Amazing shoot day that I had was, well, I'll go back a little bit. There was almost a version of this documentary that didn't have Fred Decker in it. Fred was hard to get a hold of, uh, because Fred felt a type of way about the movie and rightfully so. He put his blood, sweat and tears into the film. And when it first came out, it played to empty audiences and the critics weren't the most uh, kind because the critics were wrong. <laughs> uh, and so, uh, Fred had mixed feelings where he loves the movie, but he doesn't love how it made him feel because of the experience upon that release. And so when we approached him a couple of times about the documentary, he didn't know what the documentary was going to look like. Uh, he didn't know whether or not we were doing our jobs correctly. Uh, and he didn't know what kind of story was going to be told. And then one day, um, me and a couple of buddy, buddies went to the John Carpenter concert and we were waiting in line and standing in line next to us, even though he didn't need to, he could have gone right inside was Fred Decker. And so I was like, finally, I'm going to go talk to him. And I was like, Hey, Fred Henry from the monster squad documentary, big fan of yours. I just want to let you know. 
that at the end of the day, what this movie is about is why people love movies. And so if you've ever loved a movie, I think you're going to want to be a part of this. Uh, and then Andre sent him a 30 minute cut of the documentary that we did for Fantastic Fest. And after that meeting, we get a call up and it's Fred inviting us over to his house to finally shoot his interview after we've shot all the other interviews. Uh, and if you notice in the documentary, we start off in Fred's house when it's bright and daylight. And by the end of his interview, the sun has set and it's nighttime. And that shows how long we were there talking, having such a great time and how much he was having a good time remembering the monster squad and everything that he did. Uh, and it really touched me as a filmmaker. It was one of the most inspirational moments in my working career was hearing Fred Decker talk about not only the monster squad, but filmmaking movies and the art. Throughout the documentary, when you splice in Fred's interview, um, he does seem heartbroken about it. Cause like, like you said, you know, he doesn't like how it felt when the movie was poorly, you know, had that poor response, but you also show that the marketing was terrible for the film. You know, there was yep. really weird wanted posters. It came out roughly the same time as the lost boys. It, it sat there and it got a PG 13 rating, which made no sense, which was a, a 15 rating in the UK and in the documentary, there's this poor girl that the 15 rating still stands. And I think she was 12 and couldn't see the movie, but was allowed to come in for the Q and a at least. And, you know, that was special to her. Um, you know, was there a way that they could have fought the rating board and said, no, this is not a PG 13 movie. This is not the horror movie that you think it is or that you're trying to promote. Right. This is really not only a love letter to the universal monsters, but kids being kids, like it was real kids riding their BMX bikes in the street or, you know, other kids skateboarding or, or whatever else and just being real. Like, you know, how does, how was he able to come to terms with that now? And is he more receptive to the property and how fans have really fallen in love with it again? Well, at Beyond Fest, we had a screening of the documentary, and it was a double bill between the Monster Squad and Wolfman's Gotten Arms. And the Egyptian theater was packed. It was filled. And we watched the Monster Squad, and my heart dropped a little bit because I was like, great, now this is when everybody's going to leave. No one's going to stay for the documentary. And every single person stayed, and they ran the documentary, and Fred was sitting there watching it. And what I did on the sidelines, instead of watch my movie in the theater, our movie, Andre's movie, I watched Fred the entire time to see how he reacted. And he was a great audience member. And afterwards, we took him out and there was a standing ovation for Fred. Uh, and I think he was really touched by it. And he understood uh, the power of the fandom. Fandom over the last 10 years has really taken over. Um, I, I sit there and I see that, you know, I've been to the Star Trek conventions. I've been to San Diego Comic Con, whatever else. And I'm not trying to make people jealous that I've never been to San Diego or whatnot. Yeah. But the level of dedication and Star Trek, the Star Trek convention is fun, but it's August and in Las Vegas. So if you've never been to Vegas in August, you're lucky because it's like 197 degrees. 
and people on the sun are looking at you going, what are you doing in Vegas? It's just that hot. And then the level of dedication that goes into those costumes. Um, when you got to see the Stephen King rules t-shirt that Andre still has from 1987 and then saw fan versions of that, like what was your reaction to see the actual shirt? And then what was your reaction to see fans responses with their homemade shirts? Oh my God. It's like, well, looking at Indiana Jones hat. It, it is a prop from one of the greatest movies of all time. And it's right there in front of me. And it was so cool seeing it. And it's been even cooler watching people recreate it and getting copies of it. Uh, there's nothing better than walking down, uh, in a mall or something, a mall. There's no malls anymore. Walking down the street and, uh, somebody has a shirt that says Stephen King rules. Uh, and you go, nice shirt. And then they go, Monster Squad. Like it's, it's the best thing in the world. It's the best feeling because most other people are like, Oh, I love misery. <laughs> they, they don't know what it means. I got you, man. It's like a little insider thing. And I think that's a huge part of fandom is that we feel to have like, this is our cultural thing. Um, and then other people feel like they've invaded our, our stuff. Like for absolutely. A, like the last Avengers movie, right? Where Captain America picked up Thor's hammer and the theater I was in, I could tell who the comic fans were and who just the movie fans were because the comic fans were like, okay, cool. It's about time. And then the movie fans were like enamored and in awe and just screaming and cheering. And the rest of us yeah. were like, yeah, we read the book. We know this is going to happen. Yeah. yeah. Um, is there any level of fandom of your own that you sit there and you feel protective of? Ooh, that's a good question. Uh, I mean, I'm protective of the Monster Squad fans, for sure. Um, no, I mean, I love James Bond. I love the James Bond franchise. Uh, but you don't really have to be all too protective with that because there's a new movie every couple years. You stumped me. Well, this year we got, we have to, uh, wait till I think Easter now for uh, yeah. the next James Bond installment. They should put it on VOD and just make all the money. Everybody yeah. would rent it. You know, yeah. Disney did that and, uh, Universal was the first one to do it with, uh, Trolls World Tour. Yeah. Um, all right. So Wolfman's Got Nards. There couldn't have been any other title for this documentary. I mean, Andre said, you know, Squad Doc and, and all this other stuff, but really, you know, uh, kick him in the nards and Wolfman's got nards are the only two options that you had for this. Yeah. Um, did you ask Fred where the line came from or was that Shane Black's line? Like how did this kick him in the nards thing come about? I never asked Fred that question, <laughs> but I have a feeling that it's a Shane Black line. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Shane seemed a little more receptive in the documentary than Fred. Cause you know, Fred, Fred seemed very protective of it, but yeah. Shane seemed a little more excited with the fandom. Is that just Shane's personality or what was it like talking to Shane black? Cause he co-wrote the movie. And of course, as monster squads coming out, so's lethal weapon, you know, not yeah. too far, or I think actually came out just prior to Yeah, and, Shane's you know, career just took off right after that. <laughs> Um, uh, talk, talking with Shane was great. He, uh, wanted to talk about the power of myth and, uh, writing and stories just as much as he wanted to talk about 
the Monster Squad, and uh, he has a firm understanding of the fandom uh, and is very grateful uh, that everybody still supports the movie. And he will pop up at a screening of the Monster Squad every now and then. So if you're in California, check it out. You might see Shane Black. Yeah, I already have the DVD at home, but it, it'd be nice to go see it with a crowd one day. Yeah. You know, uh, maybe, maybe, uh, in a, for the, uh, 40th anniversary. Yeah. Um, everything that's going on, we need some, we need some levity. And this was a light documentary. There was a, there was a gentleman who, um, made his own play set, which I thought was interesting. You know, the little, the little box set. The, uh, has he yeah. retained that since 1987 or was that like more a recent creation for him? It was a recent creation. Um, okay. So yeah, that would have been interesting if he kept it all these years. Uh, but take us into the I love Rudy fanzine and the monster squad magazine itself. How many issues have been published? And it's kind it kind of looks like one of those eighties team beat magazines of which Ryan Lambert was a, was a huge staple in. This will be the second issue. Uh, made by our friend Grace, and it is fantastic. Uh, this one is even bigger than the first issue. It is the size of a novel. It is packed full with uh, things from the movie Wolfman's Got Nards and a lot of things that aren't from the movie. So it is a great companion piece. And uh, the cover was designed by Ciro, who was the creator of the Ninja Turtles cartoon in the uh, documentary. So is this the unofficial companion piece to Wolfman's Got Nards? Yeah, but I think we can call it official too. <laughs> so unofficially official, uh, uh, the magazine's called I Love Rudy. Um, I, I was joking with Andre about, um, about Ryan and I, I hope he warned him that I was totally kidding in the interview, but I would be, you know, I would be a little jealous and I still am that this guy went from like super cool kid to now Silver Fox, where I blew out both my knees and my ankles thanks to combat sports and lose my hair on top of it. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's a bit of jealousy there, but what can you do? You know? Yes. Um, when you have Ashley and Ryan in the documentary and then you're following them for 17 cities with yep. an infant. Uh, yes. Along the way in all of this, um, are you guys, obviously you guys are in a separate van and then ex except one camera person who's in the van with them to, to document yes. stuff. But what's that like going from San Francisco to Virginia and then a hurricane hits on top of it in the, in this tour when you get to Texas? <sighs> like take me through some of those, those. It was rigorous. It was, it, it was long days. It was a lot of travel days, which were also production days. We uh, put one guy in the van with them. Uh, we'd had an, another guy, uh, in our van shooting out the window so we could get exteriors. Um, and we would go from town to town and, uh, document the whole experience. And, uh, I have never been a part of a shoot that had so much footage before. I mean, we had terabyte over terabyte over terabyte of footage. I think we ended up having over 50, 60 terabytes, uh, by the time it was all done. And, uh, it was a lot of work. And a funny thing is a lot of it hit the cutting room floor. Uh, but the shots that we got, we absolutely needed. And so 
it was good that we did it. And at one point you basically almost turned into the movie Twister and had your own hurricane documentary. The hurricane was chasing us and uh, my mom and my wife would message me and make sure that we were still okay. And it was always the town behind us. So if we stayed any longer, we would be in the eye of the storm with the amulet going away. (laughs) Okay. If you have kids or if you plan to have kids when they are cognitively ready to expand past, you know, the Sesame street era, what is one of the first movies that you're going to introduce them to besides Monster Squad, of course? I was going to say the Monster Squad. Uh, after that, probably Hocus Pocus. <laughs> Hocus Pocus had a resurgence recently. Out of it nowhere, sure everybody's like, oh, Hocus Pocus, and they're dressing up. Like I had friends dress up like five, six years ago before anybody remembered what the movie was. And then I think it was on Freeform like 15 times this month. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what is it about movies like Hocus Pocus didn't do well at the box office, but has had a resurgence as part of this Disney property and, you know, Monster Squad finally DVD, uh, uh, Blu-ray and then a, a cult cut and now a documentary. What is it about some of these properties that are now having resurgences for adults? Is it because people in our age group want to share it with their kids because they had such fond memories or is it because, you know, society's fallen apart this year? And we want to feel comforted like it's our own safety blanket. I think nostalgia has a play in it. But the main thing about cult films is some a lot of cult films become uh, popular uh, when people haven't seen them when they originally came out. There's something strange about them. There's some sort of counter culture about it. There's a want to belong. And so people latch onto these films and when they find somebody else who really likes it, they have something to talk about and they become friends over it. It's a community building. Uh, and I think some cult films are some of the best movies out there. Okay. And since you are a huge Monster Squad fan, clearly, and the Wolfman's gotten ards again on VOD and DVD right now, uh, of all the characters growing up, who did you most emulate personality wise who are you closest to uh i was always in the water so i was probably Gilman. <laughs> all right so at least we know who of the monsters but who are the kids uh i was trying to cheat there <laughs> i mean look at me obviously i was horace <laughs> oh come on you know you're in canada you had to play hockey a little bit so you had to be a bit of a job <laughs> i mean i'm not in canada who says canada no, from canada sorry uh, you're from, no, from alaska <laughs> Oh, you're from Alaska. Alaska. Why yeah. did your profile on IMDb said Vancouver? Uh, it should not. Okay. That's weird. Uh, <laughs> unless I clicked on the wrong, wrong, uh, you know, McComas. It's possible. So wait a minute. Maybe, maybe right. I'm getting trolled. <laughs> so you're from Alaska then? Yes. Okay. Which part of Alaska are you from? Anchorage. Okay. Cause I've, I've been to Alaska and it was absolutely gorgeous. God bless you for being able to survive those winters. I don't know how you did it. Yeah, it's tough. Yeah. Do you currently live there or are you down here in uh, California now? No, I'm in Los Angeles now. Okay. So to you, our quote unquote cold front is, you know, nothing. It's better than what it usually is. (laughs) I I welcome it. I'm so happy there's actually a breeze right now. (laughs) 
this is true. I mean, we, we had four heat waves this summer and then 97 fires on top of it, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, everything that's going on and the documentary itself, and you had some really creative people and, and, uh, some really fun, fun fans who traveled the furthest and who traveled the most. Like, so you guys end up in London at the, I think it was the Prince Charles theater. Who traveled yeah. the furthest to go to London for the screening? And then of the 17 tours, uh, of your knowledge, who came to the most screenings across the country? Uh, it would be me and Andre. Were you saying of the fans well, or? Yeah, of uh, the fans, you know, because there's such a dedication to the property. We had people come from other state lines when we were, uh, in certain states. Uh, we, uh, in, um, England, there were people coming over from Scotland and Ireland and, uh, Wales. Uh, they, they're go-getters. They will, if there is a screening in the vicinity, they will catch a, t- uh, a plane and come on over. And since you went across the United States and then you went over to the UK, which United States fans seemed most dedicated to the property? Like which state would you go to? And you're like, Oh my God, for example, Virginia is like more dedicated to the, to this than the people in Texas. And then California loves this more than the people in Wyoming or whatever. And then in the UK, which UK fans seem to be more rabid about it? Oh, I can't pick one. I'd start a fight among all the fans. That's not fair. Uh, Texas was very, very busy, but that's because we were also going to all the Alamo draft houses and Alamo is a staple of Texas. Uh, New York really shows up. They are crazy. Uh, my favorite screenings are at New York. I love it. Um, and then London, of course, is the biggest place in England. So the fan, but like the crowds, no matter what, it's just pure love. Um, yeah. is there like certain characters that are more beloved in certain areas or, uh, you know, no. certain parts of the movie that are more beloved or is it just love across the board and that's all that it is? It's love across the board. Yeah. Uh, there was one guy in the documentary and this isn't a major spoiler, uh, that named his dog Rudy. Like what, yeah. what's Ryan's real reaction to that to have a dog named after one of his characters? Oh, he was humbled, of course. <laughs> He's a he's a little bit scared of dogs, so he might not want to meet Rudy. <laughs> that would be interesting. Yeah, I, I know quite a few people that are scared of dogs. Um, it's just interesting. And now, you know, Ashley had her baby with her on this tour. Um, what's it like not only fighting a hurricane, going 17 towns in 17 days, and having an infant on board for all of this? Like, who takes care of the baby during the Q&A? Did her husband come along? Like, like, are, do, does the crew take shifts in, in taking care of a, an infant? Like, how does that work? Sometimes all of the above. Sometimes there's family. Uh, sometimes there's friends. Sometimes the crew would help out. The baby was great to have along, not a challenge because, uh, Ashley has a great kid, uh, and, uh, was very well behaved. Um, but, uh, yeah, we all had to stop swearing and <laughs> make sure we were on our best behavior. Right. Cause that's all you want is a one and a half year old's, uh, first word to be some of the, uh, the exactly. more adult curse words. Yeah. Um, 
All right. So aside from Kick Him in the Nards, that segment of the film, what is your favorite scene from Monster Squad? My name is Horace. That is definitely a great scene. Hands down. That, yeah, especially when he, uh, when he, uh, you know, cocks a shotgun. Yeah. Gives um, it the extra pump. Yep. Um, my favorite scene would be when they're trying to do the incantation and we realize that Patrick's sister is not a virgin and he loses his mind and cause she thinks it doesn't count because of her boyfriend not being that good. And yeah, as Steve an adult, doesn't count. Yeah. <laughs> like even as a kid, I didn't fully understand the joke, but it was yeah. still funny. And then as an adult or as I matured, and the joke made sense, just added so much more depth to that, that like, I, I still laugh whenever I think about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wonder how many people run around and would, would just say Steve doesn't count or, or anything like that when they make fun of their siblings or, you know, their, their friends that uh, are a bit more promiscuous back then. We say it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's, uh, you know, the, since the documentary Wolfman's Got Nards, and at the squad doc Instagram and, and Twitter again, VOD and DVD. Um, for someone that was a casual fan of the movie or someone who's only seen the movie, but is intrigued in a fan story. Why do they need to watch Wolfman's gotten arts? Well, we made it for the fans, but uh, we also made it for someone who never had seen the monster squad before. The idea is if you've ever fell in love with the movie before you'll understand Wolfman's Gotten Arts. If you love E.T. and you don't know why you love E.T. and you can't explain it, this is the movie for you. This it gets down to the primitive nature of why someone falls in love with film. Wow. That's a very good reason for all of that. Uh, again, Wolfman's Gotten Arts available on VOD and DVD right now. Uh, we'll link everybody to where they can purchase uh, both. And Henry McComas, thank you so much for your time. Where can we find you on social media if we want to connect? I am at HDILLA, H-D-I-L-L-A, on all networks. Perfect. Henry McComas, thank you so much for your time. Again, uh, connecting boy bands and 80s pop culture all the way through. Uh, <laughs> you know what? I try my best. Listen, if Ryan Lambert could have been a part of Kids Incorporated... Yeah. And, and you connect us between Wolfman's Got Nards and the boy band Con. There's something going on here with music and horror mil- films and, and child nostalgia that's running all the way through. And I have a feeling Ryan Lambert's going to absolutely hate me if he ever gets to meet me just because of my jealousy that he still has all his hair and was like <laughs> a super cool kid. And now he's a silver fox. So just all- <laughs> we're, we're, we're going to make a musical someday. There you go. <laughs> you know, with the cast of Kids Incorporated. Wrapping the Monster Squad song from the soundtrack. Absolutely. There we go. Henry McComas, thank you so much for your time, man. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you.